Good morning, everyone. It's really good to be here. Thank you for the, the invitation to, uh, to be part of your worship this morning. Uh, as Pete said, uh, Mackie and Ruth have gone to World today, which is on the wet, uh, edge of Western Supermare, which, uh, which is where I live, with my wife and my two children. Uh, just so you know a little bit about me, because I know it can be strange when someone is presented to you <laughs> at the front of a church and you think, who is this person? Uh, to, I've, I'm married to Louise, uh, have boys called Callum and Jonah. Uh, Callum is 19 and uh, we've just sent him off to Newcastle to university and Jonah is, uh, is 17. And uh, before I was a minister, I've been a minister now for about, I don't know, 25 years, I guess. Before that, I used to work in the oil industry as a geologist and lived in up, uh, up in Aberdeen for quite a while and then have gradually been moving south. So I started in Aberdeen uh, in ministry in a church there, then moved down to Stafford and then down to uh, Whirl and who knows where next. But uh, uh, I've known Mackie for, uh, for about the last four years. Because we, uh, our paths crossed because of an Albania connection. And uh, uh, you'll know, Mackie's a fairly remarkable person. <laughs> and uh, uh, when you go out with him to Albania and just see the way that he ministers in that context and the respect he has in the churches and with leaders over there, it's, uh, it's a huge encouragement to, uh, to link up with him and, and and to minister with him. And Mackie's helps us to prepare our teams who go out to Albania uh, once a year for the last four years. We've sent teams of young people and adults to work with a partner church in Tirana. And Mackie helps us to learn at least 10 words of Albanian and have a little bit of cultural awareness before we uh, are deposited in the middle of of Tirana. So uh, I'm very grateful for my uh, relationship with Mackie and Ruth and delighted to be here uh, this morning. Uh, The title for what I want to share is, is What Did the Rechabites Do For Us? Uh, or what have the Rechabites done for us? Any Monty Python fans will realise where at least half of that title comes from. And I'm going to read from, uh, from Jeremiah chapter 35. If you've got a Bible, you might want to follow this. Uh, it's always good to speak on a passage that people have rarely read, and even if they've read it, uh, are unlikely to remember it. This is one of those chapters tucked away in Jeremiah that you've probably skimmed over. Uh, but today we're going to read chapter 35. I'm, I'm reading from a New Living Translation, so you may or may not be able to follow it. Starting at the beginning, there's lots of names in this passage as well. So if I mumble, you'll know that I'm just backing off from trying to pronounce all these names. This is the message the Lord gave Jeremiah when Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, was king of Judah. Go to the settlement where the families of the Rechabites live and invite them to the Lord's temple. Take them into one of the inner rooms and offer them some wine. So I went to see Jazaniah, son of Jeremiah, and grandson of Habazaniah, and all his brothers and sons representing all the Rechabite families. 
I took them to the temple, and we went into the room assigned to the sons of Hanan, son of Igdalia, a man of God. The room was located next to the one used by the temple officials, directly above the room of Maseah, son of Shalom, the temple gatekeeper. You're still with me, aren't you? I set cups and jugs of wine before them and invited them to have a drink, but they refused. No, they said, we don't drink wine because our ancestor, Jehonadab, son of Rechab, gave us this command. You and your descendants must never drink wine and do not build houses or plant crops or vineyards, but always live in tents. If you follow these commands, you will live long and good lives in the land. So we have obeyed him in all of these things. We have never had a drink of wine to this day, nor have our wives, our sons, or our daughters. We haven't built houses or owned vineyards or farms or planted crops. We have lived in tents and have fully obeyed all the commands of Jehonadab, our ancestor, But when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon attacked this country, we were afraid of the Babylonian and Syrian armies, so we decided to move to Jerusalem, and that is why we are here. Then the Lord gave this message to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Go and say to the people in Judah and Jerusalem, come and learn a lesson about how to obey me. The Rechabites do not drink wine to this day because their ancestor told them not to. But I have spoken to you again and again and you refuse to obey me. Time after time I have sent you prophets who told you turn from your wicked ways and start doing things right. Stop worshipping other gods so that you might live in peace here in the land that I have given to you and your ancestors. But you would not listen to me or obey me. The descendants of Jehonadab, son of Rechab, have obeyed their ancestor completely. But you've refused to listen to me. Therefore, this is what the Lord God of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Because you refuse to listen or answer when I call, I will send upon Judah and Jerusalem all the disasters that I have threatened. And then Jeremiah turned to the Rechabites and said, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. You have obeyed your ancestor, Jehonadab, in every respect, following all his instructions. Therefore, This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Jehonadab, son of Rechab, will always have descendants who serve me. A few years ago now, when my uh, boys were younger, we, we went to watch Manchester City who are the team that I have always uh, supported. And City were playing Bristol City, so it was a rare opportunity to go to a match locally. It was, uh, it was in the Carling Cup, and the boys were quite young, and we could only get tickets to sit in with the Bristol supporters rather than with the Man City supporters. And so I briefed my boys fully, I said to them, now, boys, this is the way it works when you're in the opposition fans. Right? If Man City score, then whatever you do, you just play it low-key. 
Don't get overexcited. Don't get overinvolved. Just nod, maybe applaud politely. But whatever you do, don't let everyone around you know that you're actually supporting Man City. You can imagine what happened. <laughs> After a little while, Manchester City did score. My boys forgot all about the instructions and important briefing that they'd received from their father. They leapt into the air, shouted and cheered, and the whole eyes, it felt like, of the stadium were no longer on the pitch, but were on me and my boys sitting there, in amongst all the Bristol City fans. The crowd was powerful. I was exposed as a fraud along with my boys. <laughs> And it was a lesson. (laughs) It was a lesson in what it feels like when you are the one who stands out in the middle of the greater masses. Crowds are powerful things. Crowds have the power to condition behavior, but the crowd is not always right. In fact, there are many times, aren't there, when the crowd is wrong. I'm not saying that just in case I'm offending Bristol City supporters here. I'm not saying that about football particularly, but there are times when crowds are wrong. One of my favourite films, and this, this film maybe gives us a little insight into the Rechabites, one of my favourite films is, is an old Harrison Ford one called The Witness. Anyone remember that film? Yeah. The, uh, a younger Harrison Ford was uh, in hiding, was sheltered by the Amish community, a religious group who believed in living separately and shunning modern technology and were strongly pacifist. And there's a great clip in the movie, uh, in the movie where uh, Harrison Ford is riding into town with the Amish community. And the Amish people in their, in their little uh, buggies led by horses are surrounded by the local uh, sort of hoodlums, hooligans of the town who start being aggressive towards the Amish because they're known for their pacifism. And so all sorts of things start to happen. They start getting their hats flicked off and their faces slapped and ice cream shoved on their noses. And what they don't know, these guys who, who are provoking the Amish, is that Harrison Ford is just dressed in an, as an Amish person, but he isn't actually one of them. And he gets out of the trap when he sees the aggression being put towards the people. And if you've seen the film, you know he doesn't take it. (laughs) He gives it. The Amish community were a separate community. Different from the crowd. They stood out a mile. But how does it feel for us as followers of Jesus Christ to be people who stand out, who want to be known as his followers? I wonder if that's something that you do willingly or whether that's something that you're cautious about. The Rechabites were a fascinating bunch of people. They were known as outsiders, as people who were different to everybody else. 
And if you know anything about the book of Jeremiah, you'll know that Jeremiah is full of, of visual aids that convey the message that God is wanting to convey to his people. And so Jeremiah is taken in earlier chapters in the book to the potter's house. And he's shown the potter there making a clay pot. And then the potter breaks the jar and has to reform it. And Jeremiah is taken to other places with people dressed with linen waistbands. And again, this is a message to God's people. And Jeremiah is told to tell the people to look at the almond trees. You know, if you're a visual learner, then Jeremiah is, is a wonderful book to get into. But then God says to Jeremiah, go and see the Rechabites, because your next visual aid is going to be courtesy of this bunch of people. And the Rechabites were a bunch who lived on the outside of the cities. They led a wandering life, nomadic, living in tents. They were a guild of metal workers involved in the making of chariots and of other weaponry. And they roamed the country, setting up their camp outside of villages and towns and cities. And if you had a javelin that needed straightening or a chariot wheel that needed fixing, then you would go out to the Rechabites, get them to do what the Rechabites did, and then you would come back. They were known as a distinct community, craftsmen, with their own strong family ties and metalworking guilds. They were loyal to one another. They married within their group. And they were used to living outside of the mainstream of society. And then the Babylonian invasion happened. And it became dangerous for the Rechabites to be living their life. And so they decided to move into the city of Jerusalem, to come inside the safety of the walls of that city. But of course, as soon as they moved into the city, everyone knew they were the Rechabites. They noticed them. They were dressed differently, acted differently. People gawked at them, pointed at them. But what had shaped them as a people was their ancestry. What it says in uh, 35 verses 8 to 10. Everything that we have done is what Jonadab, son of Rechab, commanded. We and our wives and our daughters, we drink no wine at all, we don't build houses, we don't have vineyards or fields or gardens, we live in tents as nomads, we've listened to our ancestor Jonadab and we've done everything that he commanded and Jeremiah is told to go to this community of Rechabites and to invite them to the temple and the dinner is prepared and the wine is put out on the table plenty of wine it's a vision of splendor and generosity and Jeremiah is told when you serve them the wine then I want you to watch what they do. And he serves them wine, and every one of them refuses to take it. And they say boldly, we're not taking this, because the promise we have made that's been handed down from our ancestors is that we will not do this. 
and the point is made to Jeremiah and to the people Jeremiah is speaking to. And the message is simply this. Jeremiah, here is a bunch of people who, because of the promises they've made, the commitments that they hold, stay loyal to what they have been commanded to do. Go and tell my people of Judah and Jerusalem that they need to learn something from the Rechabites. Because you have lost that first love. You have lost that ability to obey, to be devoted, to give everything to that calling that has been put upon your lives. Now, Jeremiah was in the place where he was able to convey that message because, again, if you know about the story of Jeremiah, sometimes unwillingly, in fact, often unwillingly, he was the person who was often on the outside and having to call back God's people to to loyalty to him. And Jeremiah often struggled like that. And many of the prayers in the book of Jeremiah are, are, are angry, almost hostile prayers as he's struggling with the calling that God has given to him. In chapter 15, verse 16, he says, I never joined the people in their merry feasts. I had to sit alone because your hand was on me. They're not actually the words of delight (laughs) from a willing prophet at that point. They're almost the voice of resentment saying, God's hand is upon me and look where it's put me. It's put me on the outside. But Jeremiah knew that he was called to be someone from the outside so that he could call God's people to the place that God wanted them to be. What can we learn from the Rechabites? It's a simple, simple question in one way. Lord, what can I learn from the Rechabites? Lord, how different am I willing to be in my discipleship in following Jesus Christ? How willing am I to stand up unashamedly, without embarrassment, to say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ? That's the way that I know he wants me to live, and I will live his way. In Luke chapter 9, It says this, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. But then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must learn to deny themselves, to take up their cross daily and to follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. it, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very soul? 
Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son, of, the son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory, the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I need to remind myself as a minister, I need to remind myself frequently, do not be ashamed of Jesus Christ. Be bold in following him. Declare his greatness. The name of Jesus Christ is the name above every other name. It's the power of God for the salvation of all people who call on him. I was in the pub on Friday night. Yeah, just a couple of couple of nights ago, I'd been invited to uh, to do a wedding blessing. Uh, someone who I've known for a number of years was uh, uh, was getting married. I've been a friend of the family for probably for the best part of fourteen years, and uh, because of family reasons, complicated story. I won't go into all the details. Uh, the, the wedding service itself uh, for Dave and his new wife had taken place in the church a couple of weeks before. But they, uh, what they wanted was to have an event, a blessing, that was, that was a public blessing that they could invite everybody to because they had needed their wedding service just to be with very immediate family who knew all the circumstances of, of what they'd lived, uh, lived through. And uh, they invited me to go and do the blessing, which was a huge privilege. But then I found myself in this room of about 200 people in the pub, about half a mile from our church. And there was a, an archway that they'd, they'd made covered in flowers, and the wedding cake was there, and the candle. And, uh, and the, the new bride and groom got together under this archway. And I looked out at all of these people and thought... This is remarkable situation. <laughs> Here in the middle of this local pub, with 200 people all gathered around, and I'm now about to ask them to pray with me for God's blessing on this couple. And so I, I summoned up the courage, and I reminded myself of what I was speaking about this morning, and thought, let's not be ashamed of Jesus Christ. Let's name him <laughs> and proclaim him every place that we can. So gather around everybody. We're now going to pray for this couple and we're going to thank Jesus for bringing them together and we're going to ask for God's blessing on them. And I went home once I'd calmed down from the adrenaline of rush of doing it and just thought, what a wonderful and lovely opportunity just to be able to proclaim Jesus. It's so easy to do it in here. <laughs> but you guys know, working in the places that you work, studying, living in the neighborhoods that you live, God make us bolder in those places to unashamedly name Jesus. And say that we're his followers. Leslie Newbegin, who's a well-known missiologist and uh, writer, uh, said this. 
the relativism which is not willing to speak about truth but only about what is true for me is an evasion of the serious business of living. It is the mark of a tragic loss of nerve in our contemporary culture. It is a preliminary symptom of death. As a church, as God's people here at Cairns Road, God wants you to be bold and faithful in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must not lose our nerve. We must not lose our nerve in proclaiming Jesus Christ. All of us in our churches are looking for, for the right ways to communicate the message of Christ. We're longing to be relevant. We need to be creative. We know that, that society has changed, that culture has changed. But do not lose your nerve in that quest to be relevant because the heart of the gospel is the name of Jesus Christ and his ability to change lives. You know, I, when we sang that song earlier, Father God, I Wonder, I've not sung that song for a little while, but it took me, it took me back to, to when I first went into ministry in Aberdeen. And I was living and working, this is a bit of a tangent, I apologise, but I was living and working uh, in, a, in one of the uh, sort of toughest communities in, in Aberdeen, mainly with kids and young people, and had a flat there and the kids would come, uh, young kids from the community would come into the flat occasionally and, uh, and I would, you know, we'd cook tea for them, have a bit of fun, and occasionally we'd, we'd share the gospel with them. And there was this one little lad whose, uh, whose name was, was Mark who would come along. He was one of the, the toughest kids in the community. He'd had a, he had a really abusive and difficult family situation. And uh, he was quite disturbed. He was one of the first kids I saw lay into another kid without any inhibition at all. He would just go for him and he would be cruel to animals, all the, the sort of symptoms of a young lad who, who was quite distressed. And, uh, and we'd sat down in the living room and I'd just learned to play the guitar. And Father God, I Wonder is one of the best songs to play <laughs> when you've just learned to play the guitar because nice simple chords starts in a lovely E minor and play that E minor, Father God, I Wonder. And, and what was fascinating was when we sang that song, I will sing your praises, I will sing your praises. Then this lad who spent most of his time being aggressive <laughs> I saw him sitting in the middle of the lounge with his legs crossed and not because he was copying anyone, he just did this, he just sat there and started singing, I will sing your praises, I will sing your praises. And I knew God was doing something. When you see that happening in a child like that, you know that something of God is reaching them. And then I left Left Aberdeen, didn't hear anything much about what was going on for a whole number of years. And then a few Christmases ago, I got a letter from someone uh, in the church there saying, someone turned up at church last Sunday 
or, or actually uh, a few weeks earlier than the last Sunday, someone turned up at church uh, and they were asking for you and, and remembering things that happened when they were a child. Uh, he's just come out of prison. But he's turned up at the church and wants to sign up for our Alpha course and wants to rediscover something that he encountered as a child. I don't know if you remember him. His name is Mark and he lived here. Jesus Christ is the power of God to transform people's lives. We must not lose our nerve in the power of Jesus Christ to change people's lives. You know, ideologies come and go. Political parties come and go. Even empires rise and fall. But Jesus said he will build his church. I guess the story of Albania (laughs) is that when Jesus said he will build his church, he meant it, even when people try to stamp his church out. Jesus is Lord. We must be careful, as Leslie Newbegin there says, we must be careful that we do not marry our churches to the spirit of the age in the quest for relevance. Though relevance is vitally important, don't hear me wrong here. But to marry our churches to the spirit of the age is not the right way to deal with the challenge that our culture places around us. What we need is increased boldness and confidence in the Lord Jesus to change people's lives. It's been fascinating these last few weeks, hasn't it, to uh, hearing about the Catholic Church getting together to discuss all of the issues that churches are discussing (laughs) these days about how we relate to our culture in relation to family and sexuality and all of those questions. And it always intrigues me that the question the media want to ask and always do ask is, is, will these changes or potential changes make the church more popular? And you understand why they're asking that question. (laughs) But it is the wrong question, actually, for us. Because the first question isn't a question of popularity. The first question is a question of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. What do the Rechemites teach us? What have they done for us? I think they teach us that when a bunch of people honour the promises that they've made before God, then God honours them. And as a church here this morning, you know the promises that you're making together as God, before God, as a church about where you want him and where you're seeking him to move you and to use you. And I think God just wants to say and encourage you Don't lose your confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Base what you're about and where you're going on proclaiming that message of Jesus Christ without shame or embarrassment. I'm going to finish 
there was something else I might have shared, but I, I just want to finish with, again, with some words that were referred to earlier in our, our worship, some words of Jesus, and I'll close with these, these words. Jesus said, Do not worry about things. Do not have such little faith. You go around saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These are the things that dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly father already knows all of your needs. So seek first the kingdom of God. Above all else, seek first the kingdom of God. Live righteously and he will give you everything that you need. That's his promise to us personally, his promise to his church. Seek first his kingdom and he will give us everything that we need.